Greetings, you are tuned in to the Bible is Lit podcast. We are continuing to dive into our twins unit. This will be the last lesson as far as we go specifically to this twins unit um, where we are studying sibling rivalries and things of that nature in the Bible story. That does not mean we won't get into similar themes, patterns, or these stories again, but this is the last part in this series where we're connecting all of these things together. So if you've been in the class or you're following along with what we're doing in the same trajectory, right? We started with Cain and Abel. We moved on to Isaac and Ishmael. Last episode, we did Esau and Jacob, and now we are moving into the story of the prodigal sons. Now, there are obviously more sibling rivalry stories we could study out. Um, it's kind of like Musashi said, if you know the way broadly, you will see it in all things. So if you understand these themes, motifs, and patterns as we're connecting them in these four stories, you will start seeing that same pattern, that same motif, that same theme, and then it even works its way into an archetype as it plays out in other stories, in other systems of storytelling, and even in the real world and life in general as we experience it. And that's the whole point as to, one, why we study these things, but two, why I worked so hard to get this thing made into its own class with its own curriculum and now i'm putting it out there to the general public as well as a resource to anyone who is in the class so that being said if it's your first time joining us that's kind of a a overview a thumbnail sketch of what we do here we're looking at the bible as a work of literature and then we're leaving it up to you as the reader as the listener to Draw your own conclusions about what you're going to believe. Although, when we look at the patterns, the themes, and the motifs, there is a very specific story the authors are trying to tell. And so, what today we're going to get into the story of the prodigal sons. And yes, I said sons, plural, not prodigal son. And I did that on purpose because there's, again, literary pattern that breaks this um, up into showing that it's really a story about two sons that are wasteful, that are prodigals. It's just the way in which they're wasteful is different. And the primary focus of the story is actually on who the father of these two boys is. And so some of that is my own interpretation of how I read these stories, but there are, again, literary patterns, and there is a motif that gets played out that I think justifies that. So you can take that with a grain of salt of what we do know, okay? So just getting, taking the text for itself, what we would call this textual or new interpretation in schools of literary criticism, meaning you're taking the text for what, what it is, you're not trying to invest anything into it or read anything out of it, superimpose anything into it that's new or slash textual criticism. Uh, Obviously, we are putting on lots of different lenses as we read this story, but what we do know from that aspect is that this story is sandwiched 
in between a series of discourses that Jesus is telling. And there are clues as to the meaning of the story in who he is speaking to when he tells this story. And then a key takeaway or something we always have to consider is that Jesus is a Jew telling stories to other Jews. He's telling stories to non-Jews as well, but in this culture, um, the culture he grew up in and the culture his own people are familiar with, they're a culture that tells stories, and they're a culture that tells stories in a particular way. And one of the common motifs, one of the common ways um, Jewish storytelling and Jewish narrative, even written narrative, had in common was this idea of repetition. So meaning um, <clears throat> stories being repeated that have similar themes, similar circumstances, but the details sl- change slightly right? That's common in that ancient Jewish mode of storytelling and is common in ancient wisdom literature. The other aspect or the other element of this type of storytelling is that the order in which these stories were told was as as an important a part just as much as the story itself is being told. So this is something if you're sitting in your general Sunday service and the preacher is telling or preaching on the parable of the prodigal son, which again, it is one of the most taught from or taught about texts in the Bible. Odds are if you are going to a Sunday service this week, um, somewhere somewhere like nearby you if it's not happening at your place of worship somebody is teaching about or from this specific text because the story is so rich and it's very palatable to an audience and that's also what is cool about this ancient story in general is the fact that it is so palatable palatable and so applicable to so many people and it's been that way for a couple thousand years as far as we can tell but the notion that the order in which the story is told creates another layer of significance is something that we have to draw out when we consider this text specifically So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the order and where this story lines up in the series of discourses because that is important. And then we're going to make connections between some of the previous stories we've talked about. And then we'll get into some of the nuances in the story itself. But the order of this is important. It's extremely important because... If we look at two, these two stories that are told right before it, and then the story that is told directly after it, all of that is meant to come together to create a more central message. So right before Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, he tells a story about a shepherd and a lost sheep. Then he tells a story about a woman losing a coin. Then he goes into the story of the prodigal son or prodigal sons. As it is called. And then right after that, he goes into a story about an unrighteous steward. Okay. And so that context is important because he's, he's creating a pattern here and he's telling stories with a similar theme. Again, with a similar theme, similar pattern, similar motif. But he's changing to details slightly so a greater meaning is drawn out. 
You know, so he tells the story about a lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go look for the one. Then he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. She is not going to go to her purse and look for all the coins that she already has. She's going to search for that lost coin. And then when she finds the coin or the money that she lost, right, she has everybody come and join and rejoice with her and they throw a big party. Then he goes into the story of the prodigal son. And just after that, he goes into um, a, a story... So... Um, at the end, Jesus, then right after he tells a story, the next thing we hear from him, now he's speaking to a different audience, he um, tells a story about a steward who is not a good steward of the stuff his master gives him, so he goes out and then he begs the other people who owe money, and he collects a bunch of money and then gives it back to the master and the master is kind of like oh you were very shrewd and you 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 came up with more than even what you owed me or what you wasted um but he was like it still doesn't get to the heart of the matter um but he was like you're shrewd in the ways of business in this world um but He's like, make sure that, um, it's like, make sure this isn't the only way that you're shrewd or you're clever because a lot of the people who aren't clever in this world or in this system are the ones who are very clever in the world to come or the thing that Jesus has coming forward as well. So he's, he's, he's kind of like saying and emphasizing here, like, Hey, this whole system that y'all have been all upon and those who have risen to the ranks, don't put too much stock into it. So, but let's get into the story. Um, so Jesus says in verse 15 or chapter 15 of Luke verse 11, he says, and a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between him. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he spent everything a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need and he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine and he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one would give him anything but when he came to his senses he said how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread but i am dying here with hunger, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. And he got up, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, put sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For the son was mine, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been 
bound. And they began to be merry. You can kind of put pause there. Um, story ends, and this is what typically most Sunday sermons and Sunday services that you are in. This is where the preacher is going to stop and, you know, kind of make this point about God always going after the one, always being there, always being there for you to return to, and then rejoicing if you mess it up and you come back to yourself. She's always there waiting for you, and this is true, and this is a pattern that goes on throughout the Bible, right? We even look at look at the stories we've had so far. You know, you have Cain kills his brother. He's um he's cast out and God still protects him. You know, um you look at the other stories that we have. We have Ishmael who is created um out of a bad decision Abraham and Sarai make, and then God still protects and blesses Ishmael. Okay, and then God still blesses and protects Abraham, even though Abraham messes up, all right? So that, that pattern continues. In the next one, we have a Jacob who claims the birthright for himself, which is very similar to this. Now, we don't have the information that the younger brother got the birthright birthright, but he does get his inheritance, his part of the family inheritance before his father died, which is acting against the cultural and community traditions of that time, basically saying, oh, hey, can you hurry up and die? Oh, since you're not dead yet, can you give me the portion that's mine now? The father does it anyway, and he goes out and he messes a whole bunch of things up, and he comes back, and his father's like, okay, cool, you're you're back. I thought you might have been dead. I'll throw you a party. And that's a very similar to the Jacob story, right? Jacob gets the birthright through a deceptive means, which is very similar to what this younger son does. And again, that connection to, to Jacob being the younger son who's not entitled to the birthright, yet is able to grab a hold of it, acting against the traditional order of things, the natural order of things, and then using his brother's vulnerability against him. In this sense, the younger son seems to be using his father's vulnerability against him, but the father might have something else in mind. Um, And then you have Esau in conjunction to this operates a lot as the younger brother. But then when we get to the end of the Jacob and Esau story, you see Esau like assuming the role that Isaac should have played in distinguishing the blessing and how to bless each of his sons. And then he gives Jacob a blessing. So he starts out as this hot headed brother who works for his father, whose identity is in his work and what he can do for his father. And again, goes out, goes out. He despises his birthright and then eventually comes to himself and blesses his brother who had to steal the blessing from his father. And now they're reconciled. And so um, Esau, in a sense, you'll see a lot of similarities between him and what's going on in the story of the prodigal sons between the older brother, which is the part of the story we'll get to. What I want to point out is the the parts in this story um, we start with in verse 11. And he said, that's Jesus speaking, a certain man had two sons, right? 
start of the narrative. Um, we get down to verse 20. He got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran. So midpoint of the narrative, we see the father again. Then we get to the last part of the narrative. <clears throat> and we see the father's perspective again. So the next part of the narrative, the part we haven't gotten to yet, addresses the older brother. The older brother, um, this is in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, right? Again, like Esau, he's out. He's working or Cain, for instance. Cain is a man of the field, a farmer who works from the toil of the ground, right? Interesting. He's working to prove he is good enough for God rather than like Abel who just offer, whose, whose identity is not caught up in the work. His identity is caught up in who God says he is. Um, now the older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he summoned one of his servants or one of these servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a kid that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours came and who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, this is the father speaking, my child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead. He has begun to live. He was lost and he has been found. So you'll see like just the structure of the story. The story starts with the father. We get the father again in the middle and the story ends with the father. So we have these two knuckleheaded sons. We have these two wasteful prodigal sons. So the younger son obviously as for his birthright, breaks the rules, he's in, or his blessing, not his, his birthright, um, I mean his inheritance, sorry, but he's rebellious, you know, and he goes out, he does the thing he wasted, he comes back to his dad, his dad blesses him and throws him a party anyway, um, and then the story ends with the father and the older brother, but where are the father and the older brother when this is happening? They're actually not in the party that's being thrown for the younger brother. They're standing outside the party, and the father is out there with the older brother saying, this is what is going on here, and if you would have just asked me, I would have done the same for you, but you won't ask me because you're so busy trying to buy your love or earn your love right through wages. Jesus says later, a little bit later, that the wages of sin is death, right? And so um, the brother is acting more like a slave, the wage. He's trying to earn his way. He's trying to earn his blessing rather than just ask his father for it. And so you have all these things going on, right? Cain, you know, and the way I read all of these putting put together, Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable to God because Cain is trying to earn his place 
next to God or trying to prove that he is good enough for God through his work rather than just offering it up to God as an act of goodwill. So in essence, Cain's identity is tied to his work because when God rejects Cain's sacrifice, Cain sees that as a rejection of himself, not the work that he did. Okay, so we see like with Abel, the insinuation is that Abel's identity is not tied up into the work that he has done. So whether God accepts or rejects Abel's work, Abel doesn't have a problem with it because Abel's identity and self-worth isn't attached to the work that he has done. Um, and we have a similar thing going on here. We see that the younger brother, although he goes out, he wastes a bunch of inheritance. Um, he messes up. His identity is not in what he can do for his dad. His identity is at some point he realizes that like I am my father's son and I can always go back. Now he's expecting to have to earn his place just like his older brother did. And then he finds out like, no, nah, you actually don't have to do that. Um, and then, of course, this pattern continues with the older brother saying like, I've worked in your house all this time. I've never disobeyed you, which that's important because Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, the super religious so-called chosen of God sitting here listening to these stories and them accusing the anyone that's on the outside of not being good enough or they haven't earned their place next to God. Um, and that's what we're going to get into Right now, if you look at the very beginning of chapter 15 of Luke, it says, now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. So Jesus has a following and the following he is gathering at this point in the meta narrative of Jesus's ministry is that um, it's people who are outside the chosen of God, people who are considered the scum of the earth as far as the Israelites, the chosen of God are concerned. And we forget about, let's just look at Abraham's story. Abraham, self-serving person, puts other people in harm's way repeatedly, has a sense of entitlement because God has promised him these things, tries to gain the promises of God himself. Eventually, he lays it down and lets God bless him, right? But not after he has a child with his much younger maidservant, and that child and that woman have to bear the consequences of that, right? His chosen son, Isaac, then lives with the weight of growing up in that negative family dynamic. He carries that on to not being able to rule his household with his two sons to the point to where Jacob, his youngest son, deceives him and creates all this trauma and turmoil in their household. And then Jacob himself going out, having multiple wives, um, and operating his whole life through deception. So you see the pattern is they, they're the chosen of God, but they miss the fact or they miss the point that their whole chosenness has been built upon a web of deception, lies, and cowardice. And then in the midst of that, God has still persisted with them. 
and God has still blessed them despite the fact that they actually have not gotten it all right like the person, like the older brother in the story claims, if the older brother, again, archetypally speaking, is representative of the chosen of God, or in this sense, Israel as depicted in the Old Testament. And so, Jesus is talking to, well, Jesus has generated this following among those who are outsiders, Again, that would relate or line up with who the younger brother is. And then it says in verse 2 of chapter 15, And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And after hearing that, right, he tells them this parable. Right? And so then he goes into the lost coin, or the lost sheep, the lost coin, prodigal son. And all of that is to make a point to those religious people who think they have it all figured out and so the ending of the story the ending of the story is exceptionally important because it ends with the father in this case representative of god addressing the brother who's been in the house with him the whole time who has done all the right things but still with hardness in his heart, can't accept the good thing his father has done for his brother, can't even expect the good thing that, hey, for all they know, that brother of his could be dead. So you get this layer of, well, was the older brother actually happy that the younger brother was dead or presumed to have been dead? Because there's subtext there that would suggest that Either way, we're right back into Cain and Abel now, right? Cain, jealous of his brother, for whatever reason, God's accepting of Abel's sacrifice. And even though Cain worked really, really hard through the sweat of his brows, a tiller of the ground, God says your sacrifice isn't good enough. You can do better. And now Cain is in this position where he is wrestling with sin. He's wrestling with hatred towards brother and his God says rule over it. In this sense, <laughs> we have God as the father, right? We have to be merry and rejoice for this brother yours was dead has um, and has begun to live. He was lost and now that he was found, right? And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me and all that I have is yours. Similarly, right, the father addressing the hard situation the older brother is going through, even leaving the party and extending an invitation to the older brother. And then, boom, Jesus stops the story. And then the next part of the narrative is him addressing his disciples, breaking this down even more. And he tells this story about a steward who was unfaithful, which is what he is. One, he's kind of giving them a snapshot of like, hey, if I'm going to give this to you to steward this richness, this tradition, that um, you you have to um, understand that you think you're going to be mighty and figure things out in the way the system, the world system is going on right now. He says, this is a completely different thing. You might be the lowest of the low in terms of the way men see you and the way the world system sees you. 
So there's a lot of things going on there. My personal take on this, and again, there's a pattern, there's patterns and motifs that establish this, um, but take it with a grain of salt and study it out for yourself. You know, the way I read these discourses of Jesus is that Jesus is well-versed, obviously, in all the stories that are told in the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Ketavim. He's well-versed in, in the tradition. He understands the people and their tradition. And he is reinterpreting these stories to draw out a greater meaning and then to point the picture to in a different relief, basically to show the people of his day, like, hey, we've been reading these stories all wrong. You've been superimposing your belief or your way of life upon the whole reason why these stories were told. The major theme or the meta narrative that we're trying to get to is that all of us are flawed, whether we are chosen or not chosen, and that we have to rely on something outside of ourselves that points us back to our true selves, which is, again, going right back to Adam and Eve. You can reach for wisdom. You can reach for that thing and do it under your own power with a bad result. Or you can allow God to teach you the wisdom. And life is meant to be, as far as the biblical pattern that's established here, life is meant to be humanity partnered with God, living and working together. And then the whole new covenant, then the New Testament story and the theme that's established is that we have this separation between God and man and man looking to things outside of themselves to try to grow, draw closer to God. And then when Jesus comes, the narrative, and this is a type of narrative inversion that happens, the narrative is flipped upon its head. And instead, it's showing you that how God has put himself inside man and we're no longer... You're no longer looking to a temple system or something outside of mankind itself to become whole. The idea is that mankind is already whole because now heaven and earth have merged. This status of God, the Garden of Eden that was lost has now been reestablished, but it's not been reestablished anywhere outside. It's actually been reestablished inside the heart of every human being. The trick then is to have your awareness opened to that fact. And that is how all of these stories tie together into one kind of major overarching narrative that tells a much greater story. And again... My take on that is Jesus is reinterpreting in his discourses. And you can go back and read his discourses. And the reason the discourses sound familiar, especially when you compare them to the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim, and all the stuff going on in the Old Testament, they sound familiar because he's riffing on the same patterns. He's telling basically the same story. He's just putting a different spin on them. So that concludes our unit on twin stories, sibling rivalries. Um, 
But don't be surprised if you see us go back into these stories at some point, just from a different angle. But until next time, um, let us know if you have any thoughts. Shoot us any questions. They may get built into a new lesson, a new unit, or just make it into a stand-alone podcast. Uh, For our next unit, we're going to start looking at the hero's journey and different hero narratives in the Bible story. But until next time, peace to y'all.